Hello and welcome to Screen Queens, the podcast that dazzles you with a deep discussion of drag in cinema. We are your dynamic duo of myself, Rue Jazzle, and... DJ Banks. Now, from the perspective of two fabulous drag artists and our very special guests each week, we're taking a strut down Hollywood's history of drag portrayal to see what they got right, what they got wrong, and all the glitter in between. Isn't that right, Rajazzle? Yes, and this week we are delving into the Australian classic, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, with our very special guest of the week, Glasgow's most opinionated drag queen. We have Oktoberfest! Yay! Hi, everyone. Hello. Welcome. How, How are you, are October? You? I am fabulous. I am doing very, very well. My poor little flatmate has the sniffles just now. So to be on the safe side, I am sitting in my house for the next two weeks. I'm so excited. Oh, what a responsible citizen. We love that. The question is, can, like, in three years' time, when I'm just not feeling the show go, guys, I'm quarantining for two weeks? <laughs> I wish you would do that more frequently. That would make everyone happier. And I wish that you never come out of quarantine. So what are we discussing <laughs> today? On that note, I will say that watching this film again, it's quite scary how much a young CJ Banks is just Felicia Jolly Goodfellow. <laughs> I'm sorry. The three of these characters are the three of us. We have the hard-working, gig-getting um, ingenue who gets them to Alice Springs. That is, of course, Rujazzle. We have the <laughs> loud-mouthed youngster, C.G. Banks, and the older, disgruntled trans woman. That'll be me. <laughs> alcoholic trans woman. <laughs> yeah, major alcoholic. That, I will say, yeah. <laughs> we, we will dive in, of course, very deeply in this uh, podcast, but Bernadette is a fucking icon. That's all I can I say. That is, that is my conclusion of this film. She is iconic. Most of the praise of this film is like that, the, the portrayal of that character is the strongest part of this entire thing. Like a lot of it's like, oh, there's a lot of gain, a lot of drag, but this portrayal is what like sinks, uh, or what like sings. Well, way back in like 2015, I watched this movie for the first time and it cracked the egg for me, which is the phrase of when someone realizes that they're trans. And I was like, I really admire this character. Oh, I want to be this character. So, <laughs> like, there might be a bit of problems with the fact that it's a cis man playing the role, but he did a good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did a good really, job. Really, really strong. And I think, I, I can't think of a, a better um, or a more iconic portrayal of a trans woman in, in a film like this, to be honest. I mean, there are lots of portrayals these days, um, mm -hmm. but that one is pretty legendary i will say one of the yeah, first think, strongest yeah i think out of portrayals of trans women that aren't by other trans women which i think it should be that obviously makes sense but in cases like this where that just wasn't an opportunity for trans people we just were not getting cast in these roles i think that this is definitely one of the better ones um it's a shame that they chose to use a cis man rather than a cis woman Sick, because yeah. they decided that at the end of the day, a trans woman really is just the same as a cis man, which very problematic in terms of casting, but he did do a good job with it. I cannot dispute that. The, one of the, the most egregious things is casting a cis man to play a trans woman because it perpetuates the stereotype that at the end of the day, it's just a man with something on. But 
if we're looking strictly at acting, it is a very, very strong acting experience. Exactly what you just said, but exactly. it's something that we know in hindsight and something that wasn't a discussion happening at the time when this was being cast, probably. So guys, let's dive into this movie. Of course, last week we looked at the rather interesting Tu Wong Fu, and we thought it was appropriate to move from that film to this film, which is an earlier and far superior version of a similar story. Of course, this film came out in 1994, and it's about a group of drag queens who are portrayed by Hugo Weaving, Guy Pearce, and Terence Stamp as they journey across the Australian outback from their home in Sydney to Alice Springs in a tour bus they have named Priscilla. And on the way, they have a bunch of adventures and encounter various groups and forms of discrimination. We'll, of course, dive into the plot in a wee second. But before we start, do you have any notes on production, CJ? So um, one of the things that we, obviously, we peruse, we do a lot of research before we jump into these film reviews. Um, Wikipedia. I a really funny... So obviously, I want to tell... Um, People who are musical theatre fans will know that there is a musical based on this movie um, and features basically the same plot a lot more. I want to a, give a massive shout out to the both the soundtrack of the musical and the soundtrack of this film. All of the songs are just so iconic. It's and, gay as fuck. And have really, like, the songs have become part of the queer canon of music. Like, you can't listen to half these songs and be like, I've never heard that you do know it because it's played in every gay bar around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but my funny story, um, when I, I think I was maybe like 13 or 14, hadn't come out yet, had never seen drag. My sister who lived in London at the time bought me, bought us tickets to go and see this musical, having no idea it was about drag. She, when she pitched it to me, she was like, we're going to go into this musical. I read it's about three backpackers who make their way across Australia. She had no idea it was anything to do with drag. And we turned up to the theatre and outside the theatre is a massive high-heeled shoe, like the one on top of the bus. And she was like, I don't think we're in the right place. <laughs> and we went in and we watched the whole musical. And because I was not out or anything at the time, we were both kind of like, that was weird. Um, I guess it was fine. And we just t- totally never spoke about it again until I started doing drag. And my sister was like, you've got me to thank for that. Wait, wait, wait. How old were you? I was like, I think I was like 13, 12, 13, 14, maybe. Well, and you didn't um, know you were a homo then? Um, Probably not quite yet. I didn't come into my gayness until like 15, 16, probably. Mm. Judging by you, I reckon others knew by that point. Oh, others knew. <laughs> I mean, that, the same sister took me to Lady, Lady Gaga concert that week, and I was like, yeah! Honey. But I hadn't realised yet. The egg hadn't cracked. <laughs> but yeah that's that's my funny story um the only other things about production are obviously we talked about um Tu Wong Fu last week and um one of the interesting tidbits that I read was that during production of Priscilla they heard that Tu Wong Fu was in production and they got very nervous about whether they would be overshadowed because obviously this is um a, an Australian film it's an Australian production um, which had been trying to kind of start up since 1991, I read as well. They'd pitched it in 1991 cans and it didn't really get any traction, didn't go anywhere. So they'd been trying to make this for a while. They were halfway through it, or, or filming indeed, and they heard about Tu Wong Fu starting up and they got really nervous. But then they got the script and they were like, no, we're 
fine. <laughs> we're just going to keep oh going. Um, which I think is very indicative of like, if you're filming something like this and you go, uh, I, I, I'm worried that a Hollywood version is going to overshadow it and you read the Hollywood script and you're like, we're fine. We're good. Yeah. Other than the premise of these movies about drag queens on a road trip, there really is nothing similar to this film to Tu Wong Fu. Other than, I think the acting of the three main roles is very, very strong in both. I think that the three actors here kill their parts. What, what do you think? Do you disagree? I, I think that the three... I, I will applaud all six actors for taking it seriously and not playing every single second for comedy because I don't think either film called for it. However, I think with this portrayal, these three people are shown to be more fully rounded human characters, whereas for Noxima being the worst uh, character in Tu Wong Fu in terms of we only see one side of her. There's no mm. character depth. There's no, yes, she has that nice moment with the, the older woman, but with this film, all three are shown good moments, bad moments, struggles, highs. Um, we see a, a, a snapshot of their humanity Whereas I would argue the other film doesn't really show that. They're one-dimensional, whereas in this, they are 3D. Um, one of the big differences that I noticed is that, obviously, in Tu Wong Fu, it starts off and Patrick Swayze's not in drag. And then he gets in drag, and then the whole film is between them in drag. And there's no real humanity to them. This movie starts off with Hugo Weaving in drag, and then very quickly we start to sort of see the shell get peeled back. So the movie goes, look, it's drag queens, but actually they're also real people and really dives into that. And I think it's, it, it's just such a sort of stark comparison because one movie is interested in seeing this is a full snapshot of these people's lives and the other yeah. movie is interested in going, these are creatures, these are fairies that can come along and make your straight life better. Mm. And it's just such a difference in what the movies are trying to say and do with the characters, I think. I, I think just to uh, I'll, I'll build on top of that point, one of them tries to show that like we're all humans underneath this but fails because you don't actually see the human underneath because they are dressed up in makeup and wigs the entire film yeah. and this one's like look we're drag queens but we have lives that don't revolve around drag and we have struggles that are nothing to do with the career that we do i think this is such a, a better representation of like the human underneath the drag yeah. Absolutely. And I think when you look at it, Tu Wong Fu is a film about, that on the surface, it's about drag queens, but in reality, it's about how can queer people serve the streets, whereas this film is very much a queer film made by queer people about queer people, and that's why I think it's superior across the board in every way. Yeah. And yeah. we will discuss that in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so our next section we always like to dive into a little bit of casting speculation discussion on how different casting may have altered this film uh, have you got the notes on this or do you want me to, to you, you to, can to dive reveal? in you can dive in so um not for any specific part but as i've said this film was trying to get kind of traction from 1991 cans and one of the first names that was tied to this was david bowie he was thrown around not for any specific part but that his involvement in this film would have been a good thing. How do you think having Bowie in this would have changed it? I think he's too iconic. And I think with these three actors, I mean, definitely Guy Pearce was very much, a, a, he, I think he'd just kind of done soap operas before this. I don't think he'd done any kind of major roles. But with the three of them, 
I feel like they weren't huge stars. I mean, I yeah. guess, I guess, I guess Terrence Stamp has been acting for quite a long time. Um, Hugo Weaving, kind of in the middle of there, but they weren't huge names. I think if you'd had a huge name attached to it, I think it would have overshadowed. Yeah, I think it would. I think if you bring Bowie in, it's kind of like having Cher in the uh, Mamma Mia sequel. It becomes the Cher show, and you don't focus on the story at all. So I am glad that Bowie was not in this. Yeah, I mean, do you think that's part of why they didn't have the characters out of Dragon 2 Wong Fu because they're such big names that you wouldn't really be able to disassociate from who they are as people? And Potentially, you could yeah. Some characters, whereas here, they're much less big. They're, they're not as big names at the time, so it was a lot easier for people to see Hugo Weaving as the character of Mitzi in like a full capacity. It wasn't overshadowed by who he was as an actor. Yeah, that's, I guess, a good point, actually. I think one thing as well that back then it must have been hard to find actors willing to do a role like this. And maybe they were only considering Bowie because he, he was known for his gender-bending persona. And maybe they yeah. thought, oh, he'll be up for it. The other name that I thought was interesting was Tony Curtis in the role of Bernadette. Of course, Tony Curtis, we will look at him later when we, when we discuss Some Like a Hot. He was Josephine in Some Like a Hot. So I guess he has dabbled in drag as well. They also mentioned uh, Jason Donovan for the role of Felicia, which is hysterical. I I don't think that's hysterical. A, I would have loved it because he is one of my all-time first crushes because of the Joseph video. Um, I think the thing is, he, he was... So the story with Jason Donovan, he was down to do it. But when him and another actor came together at the first kind of production meeting... Um, they didn't get along and they didn't treat the staff very well and because of that disagreement. So I th- Jason Donovan was down to be that character and has since been that character on the Broadway production, but never ended up being in the film. I mean, Jason Donovan would have been just as delicious as Guy Pearce. So I'm down for either. <laughs> the sexiest character in it. The last name I have on this list as well here um, is Tim Curry as Bernadette, which yeah. I think, I don't think that would have worked. <laughs> I think, I, it's, it's tough because I only see Tim Curry as like such a camp comedy actor. Everything he does... Or villainous. Intended, but like even his villains, I think, are like so high camp fun that I think Bernadette has, you know, hilarious moments, but there's a very serious side and that's not to say that Tim Curry wouldn't be able to rise to that challenge but just putting him his face on that character you're like I would end up laughing at every single thing even if it was intended to be serious because it's Tim Curry it's Tim Curry yeah Yeah, it would definitely be like I just the whole time I would just be looking at Tim Curry going you're not a trans woman you are Dr. Frankenfurter and I can't unsee anything else and I think it would be similar to having any other big name like David Bowie in it, it just wouldn't make sense. It just, you wouldn't be able to look past the actor. And I also think that, um, what was I going to say there? I think Bernadette has such like a dry wit. And I think if Tim Curry delivered it, I would be laughing out loud. Whereas with Bernadette, I'm like, that's really like funny. That's savage. But if it was Tim Curry, I'd be like, oh my God, that's so funny. I think my reaction would be completely different with him delivering the exact same lines. It's funny because if you're to, I mean, it's probably not a good thing to do this, but if you were to compare the three characters to their essentially counterparts in Tu Wong Fu, I guess Bernadette is the Noxima because she's kind of like the one 
with the sassy lines and the amazing comic kind of comebacks. But we can clearly see that Bernadette is a far superior, more well-rounded character with a great story arc, as are the other two as well. But anyway, and before we dive into the plot, any other final points? No, I think think I'm good to jump into play act. Oh, actually, one last thing. I I wrote down here a list of what I would consider to be the, the main themes of this film that I think we will touch on throughout this podcast. So those are, the first one is discrimination. The second is the idea of being Australian. The third is queerness, and by that I mean queer love and queer family. And the fourth is the idea of home. So I think those four things are the main thematic devices devices of this film, and they recur throughout it in a, a quite interesting way. So the film begins in Sydney in a slightly glamorous but mostly kind of dingy gay bar, and we have Mitzi and Felicia performing I've Never Been to Me. I also find it quite... The thing with this film, in a, in a, I keep on comparing it to Tu Wong Fu, but in a kind of similar but different way, it has moments of realism, but I guess here it's much grittier, than these surreal moments. But in uh, this film, they're played more in an artful way, I would say. Like the priest appearing on stage during her number, like that wouldn't happen in a drag show. Like you wouldn't have someone in a full priest costume just there. Well, I mean, C.G. Banks has done entire performances in priest costumes. I've been a priest multiple times, Mama. Let's get it together. But to walk on for five seconds? Uh, You can have a plant in the audience. Transgender is very often (laughs) a a suck audience plant. Although this film is quite gritty and very much set in real life, there are these just kind of flickering moments of surrealism. Like even the scenes of Felicia on top of the van doing her like operatic number is quite surreal. And I, I, the way that I kind of read this was it suggesting that drag is all about illusions and the twisting of reality and that drag is kind of about the break in the matrix in a way. What, what do you guys think of that? I like that you use the break in the matrix reference considering we're talking about Hugo Weaving. I know, yeah, right? <laughs> um, I completely agree. I think that, yeah, he's Agent Smith in the matrix. Fucking hell, CJ. That's like his most famous role. Anyway, I, um, I, I completely agree with you, Ru. I think that one of the things that's really interesting is every scene where there's a performance, there's an element of it that is just unrealistic, but it doesn't detract from the movie in any way because it is making that point that when a drag queen is performing, it is meant to not be... Like, you don't take it at face value. Yeah, You don't look at the person in a sequin dress dancing on a table in a bar with about 20 people half-heartedly paying attention you get absorbed into the fantasy you really soak that in and or at least that's the intention and i think the movie does a really good job of portraying that and as we've seen with a lot of digital drag this is the sort of things that people wish they could do they wish they could have six costumes in a single number but it's just not possible when you're on a stage so i think the movie does a good job of capturing that magic of drag i guess without making it too ridiculous. Completely. And I think that that's, that shows that this film was made by someone, written by someone who knows drag, loves drag, and respects the art form. But yes, at this show, it's quite evident that the audience aren't paying attention. Uh, they're showing playing snooker with their backs turned, drinking beer, rolling was, their eyes. I was fully <laughs> like, in what gay bar is there a drag show happening where there's a snooker table? And then I remember there's one upstairs in Delmonica's. <laughs> So every single Wednesday when we were on stage, 
Someone is probably playing snooker and not paying attention. Exactly. But they're above the stage, so who cares? So the queens finish their number, and there's quite a rowdy reaction. Someone throws a beer can at Mitzi. The person who throws the beer can two seconds ago was like, yeah! It's like, how do you go from like, that was a great show, to throwing your beer can? How does that happen? I, the, the way that I read Have that... Have performed in a club? <laughs> True, but if he's good, if, if he is clapping for you, he at least enjoyed it, so then... Is that him tipping you by throwing you an empty can? Like, what's the deal? The way that I read that was this film, I think, is a deeply Australian film and it's both celebrating and critiquing its country. And that's quite, that's kind of portrayed in how a lot of the characters are quite kind of gritty and rowdy and like foul-mouthed, which I guess yeah. are kind of, they're kind of stereotypes of Australia. Don't yeah, you I... think that the sensibility of Australian people kind of resonates with Scottish people as well. Like, that, those words, gritty, like, foul-mouthed, there's a lot of similarities, I find. Yeah, I was just about to say, um, for, as a disclaimer, if you're Australian and you're listening to this, when we say all those words, we could say them about ourselves. Um, we're yeah. not being derogatory here. Um, I, and I do think that is a very fair point. It, it's trying to make that impact of, yeah, this might be a gay bar, but they're just as rough and rowdy as anyone else because that is just part of the Australian experience. Type. Yeah. Okay, so after a phone call backstage, the beat, it cuts to a flashback in a hospital and Mitzi is wearing a, a chandelier as a drag costume and we see a wedding ring on her finger. Um, what do you guys think of these flashback moments? Because again, they're very surreal. That is where Katy Perry got her Met Gala chandelier inspiration from. That's all I'm going to oh, say. Oh my God. <laughs> I fully want this costume just for sitting about the house in. Because you know you could never perform in a single venue in this. You wouldn't be able to get through the front door. So you just sit about your house in this feeling October, fabulous. you're lying. You would sit on stage and do Chandelier by Sia. <laughs> on a stool. No, no movement. It's a standing no, I would get you, Rujazzle, to wear the costume and then I would just sit underneath you swinging from bar to bar. <laughs> okay. So, um, Mitzi calls her friend Bernadette, who's a trans woman, as we discussed, and a drag queen. And sadly, her partner has died and they attend the funeral, which is a very evidently queer funeral. At first, I kind of thought, or at least in the past, I read it as this person had maybe died of AIDS because that was the kind of era of that happening. But then actually Bernadette does explain how her partner died. Was it mm. asphyxiation, I think it was? Uh, he was dyeing his hair and he asphyxiated on the peroxide fumes is the story that we are led to believe. <laughs> because someone's, uh, um, the, the main character says, oh, he like tripped up in a bathroom and slipped and fell. And she was like, no, he was in the bathroom dyeing his hair bleaching again. Every, a, every day during quarantine is I know, about that's it. a very quarantine <laughs> mood right now. <laughs> we talk about like going to a funeral in full drag, how A, camp that would be, and B, like you're asking to ruin your makeup, so you may as well go in a tear-stained face anyway. <laughs> Get that black well, liquid dial and let it drip and be like, I'm ready, let's go. I mean, that, that was actually something I really liked about that funeral scene is that it captures the fact that, yes, okay, there's people at a funeral in drag, which is a bit ridiculous, but also just because someone's a drag queen doesn't mean that they are, ex like, they get an exception from the tough parts of life. And sometimes yeah. you do find yourself sitting there in drag and really 
strange or uncomfortable situations because drag almost feels inappropriate for it. But just because someone looks weird doesn't mean that bad things happen to them. And I think that's something that perpetuates throughout the movie. It's sort of really hitting home that just because something is strange doesn't mean it doesn't live a normal life or as close to a normal life as you can when you have makeup like that. That's very, yeah. very true. One of the things that we're like, oh, it's normalizing that there's humans underneath this and humans die. So, of course, it's a part of this person's life. Exactly. So what happens next is uh, Mitzi tells Bernadette that she'd been invited to do a show in Alice Springs, which is in the middle of Australia. And I think Bern- I've done a show with her. <laughs> Alice Springs, and, yeah. And Bernadette reluctantly agrees to join her. Uh, and Felicia, the younger drag queen, is also joining, much to the disgust of Bernadette. And Felicia I, is a is a very uh, arrogant, annoying young delicious. drag queen. <laughs> I have to say, Bernadette meeting Felicia for the first time is a full on mood for me. This is exactly how I felt the first time I ever met CG Banks. I was I'm like, not that. I wasn't that loud when I first met you because I was like, "Oh, I'm just I'm very hardworking and I just want the opportunity." Now I'm screaming your ears off. But back then, CJ, the first time I met you, you were in the audience at Dell's, and yeah, you got that's so bad. Smashed, you ended up under the table. That's that's rough. So I, I don't remember. <laughs> what a surprise! They're all alcoholics in this, so we're all joined <laughs> <Relatable>. together. <laughs> so Felicia's dream is to climb King's Canyon, which is in the middle of Australia, in full drag. And Bernadette's line is, that's what the country needs, a cock in a frock on a rock. Which is fine for this context because it's a male-identifying drag queen, but that term is not quite great these days for everyone. Um, you know what? I'm quoting the film, don't come for me. You're allowed to say that term because he has a male identifying, yeah. like a cis male. If anyone's got the right to read say it, it's a male drag queen, it's a trans woman. <laughs> she's, she's in a position to use that. Completely. So Felicia manipulates her parents to give her $10,000 to buy a, a, a tour bus from some Swedish tourists. And she tells her mum that this will help her get over this phase and meet some lovely country girl. And we kind of learn that each of these characters face uh, a kind of discrimination of their own. And in the case of Felicia, it's from her family. Um, and even at this time, it was obviously still very, very hard coming out as, as gay in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the hereby christen this budget Barbie camper, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I'm not doing a showing accent, sorry guys. Um, Please! <laughs> oh, come on, Rujazel. Absolutely not, it's a hard one. Uh, the queens get a crowd cheering them as they leave. One thing I did note here was that Bernadette says, ladies, yes. start your engines. I was like, oh my was God, like, RuPaul stealing from a trans woman again? <laughs> well, it's not It's not stealing. You know RuPaul loves a reference. So he'll, that's, this is obviously the basis of that reference. There's another one later on, which is an iconic drag line. But I was like, this is, she loves a reference and this is where the reference comes from. Which one later on? Yeah. Um, we'll get to it. Okay. Well, one thing that's interesting is that Usually references are eventually um, referenced and I'm not seeing a bibliography when RuPaul is referencing Ladies Start Your Engines. So, Any camp viewers will know their history. Uh-huh. Well, we shall see. It's up to you to do your own research, October. <laughs> wow, a cis gay man yelling at a trans woman to go do her research. 
Wow. It's just like so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the queens are on the road and at nighttime the they lock Felicia outside and she sings to annoy them. And there's a, there's a very clear character clash between Felicia and Bernadette. I do love that scene where Felicia's driving and uh, Bernadette's trying to do her lipstick and she keeps on hitting the brakes. That's hysterical. <laughs> One of the things that at this point in the film that I quite liked was see if this was like a... I think you can see this when it's a cult film versus a Hollywood blockbuster. The exposition and the storytelling, it's all very like simple fast-paced and not like over overdone mm. like see yeah. at this point in the film it's only about you know 20 or 25 minutes into it and they're already like expositions finished and they're like in the meat of the story and i i appreciate it sometimes you find that with cult films where like they don't faff about and do a lot of like unnecessary extra it's like here is the story we're, we're throwing in the heart and everything but like it's not overdrawn or like extra. It's just like this is the story and this is what it is. And I, I appreciate the simplicity of it. Yeah, we don't have any mournful and wistful scenes of them driving up to a nice fancy house in an American <laughs> estate and just well wow. just staring at a woman who may or may not be their mother and feeling sad. Well, I mean, as in terms of like, there's no extra like plot points that don't come to anything. Everything that's being yeah. told is being told for a reason, but it's all being done succinctly. You know I love it when it's less than two hours long like our podcast. Exactly. <laughs> so the queens are on the road and they realise now they are very much in the middle of fucking nowhere and we learn more about these characters and Mitzi admits that she's married and we have a brief flashback of her getting married in drag, which again I found quite surreal. Why do you think they did that? The well, thing with the cutaways, it yeah. almost feels like Family Guy sometimes. The cutaways are so quick and so, like, bizarre. No explanation. It's for, 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 like, for that specific wedding one, I was like, that must be for comedic effect because yeah. we all are aware that he didn't get married in drag, but it's to kind of, like, sprinkle humour on the situation, which is what a lot of queer people do, like, with things that are troubling, with things that are hurting from their past you can make light of it, make comedy of it, it seems to kind of help you cope with it. Yeah, I mean, we see this when they eventually double back and we see a little bit more of the hospital scene. And um, Bernadette and Felicia are both there. So all of the flashback scenes are meant to be much like the performance is sort of farcical because this is purely the memories of Mitzi. This isn't real life in any capacity. So, and I think that is exactly what CJ said. They're trying to cover up troubling memories with a little bit of glitz and glam. Yeah, you remember it through your own rose-tinted glasses and it's like, oh, I, I was in drag for that wedding because that makes it seem like it was less, you know, sad. And also that means that we had a lovely little drag king and her wife as well. But yes, it's, it's very clear that these flashbacks are very much purposefully surreal because, as you see, CJ, it's about the way that we view our own memories and we see them in our own way for them to make sense in our own head. And I mean, we see things like- And to not cringe at them as much. If I could could be in drag for some of the worst moments in my life, I'm sure it would have given them a touch more pizzazz. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I also want to touch on, like it's around this time, so obviously they are only just discovering that Mitzi is married. And I think that's quite interesting because I think that's quite a realistic portrayal of 
like drag relationships. Like you can be like best friends with another queen, but yet you're like, oh, I didn't know this about your like day to day life because we only see each other under cover of darkness. I don't know your human government name. That's so weird. <laughs> very, very, very true though. Very true. I guess it kind of feeds back into the idea of drag being this illusion and uh, like an, uh, uh, an armor to cover all of our, our insecurities and our, and our traumas and things. And we don't always see the person beneath. And I think this film is all about lifting that curtain of illusion of drag and finding out who these people are underneath that. One of my other favorite lines, the one that I was referencing earlier, happens around about this time. There are two things I don't like about you, Felicia. Your face. Iconic lines. That was great. Like, just perfect. With Felicia as the name, iconic. (laughs) Is she the origin of by Felicia? I don't know. (laughs) Or Felicia? No, I don't think so. I think that's a... A thing. I think by Felicia, that's said with an American. By Felicia? No, that's an American thing. True, very true. I mean, that that joke is iconic. I think by this point, it's quite an old read. Overused to hell, but still iconic. But maybe here we have the origin, who knows? So the next scene, we have Mitzi and Felicia playing a card game. And I think they have a bet and Mitzi loses so that the, the forfeit is they have to get up and drag and walk through this town they've arrived in. Because Felicia seems to love this attention that she gets from, from sh- shocking people. Yeah. And that this, this entire town is bemused by them and we kind of see it in people's reactions, even dogs. And they then check into a very tacky hotel. It's beautiful. It's absolutely not beautiful. Um, <laughs> this scene obviously features the most iconic flip-flop dress with yeah. the orange and the pink flip-flops, which I don't know if any of you watched, Art Simone did a closet tour and she has an exact replica <gasps> of wow. a flip-flop dress. Although they call it a thong dress because they call flip-flops thongs. Um, ah. so iconic. Um, one of the other funny things is um, it's like seeing the wigs. See, at this point, and it's that um, Felicia's wearing like a neon blue and pink like foam i don't even know how to describe it's not foam it's like um do you remember the wig that thodgy wore to the season eight reunion that kind of like long strands of plastic yeah like plastic wiring plastic wiring but it's like finessed as if it's hair i love every single wig in this because none of them have a touch of realism about them at all they're all like Foam wigs, plastic wigs, or bobs that are straight up and no out at all. As soon as CJ sees a wig and it's not got a lace front on it, she's like, I'm in. I'm like, give it to me now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think this film is very much portraying what Australian drag is, which is quite a unique thing. And it is kind of a, I think it does relate to British drag, but it's very much its own thing. It's very much based around this kind of over-the-top artistry and very much not being feminine. I mean, I don't think Felicia tucks, and it's quite clear that you can see, like, her her bulge in some scenes. Interesting that you were looking. I was also looking. (laughs) Um, But I agree with you. I think it relates to British sensibility with... We have pantodames, and specifically their makeup screams pantodame, and the costuming Mm -hmm. is like... Lud, they're not. There's no aspect of realism. There's no like breastplates or tucking or padding. It's like 
I am not aiming to be a woman. I'm aiming to be a visual masterpiece. And I think yeah. we know a little bit of that with, with panto dames. Um, like the entire thing for me is in that panto realm of costuming because it's, you're not wearing this to be like, oh, you look fierce. It's like you are a, a spectacle. Yeah. And that even carries through like even modern day Australian drag. This is such a sort of heavy reference point. Um, yeah. I remember Courtney Act was talking about how for Drag Race, she wanted to wear a flip-flop dress, but she had had one made out of old iPhones to like bring it up to the modern age. Mm-hmm. And she had like a foam wig for it and everything, but she didn't want to wear it because it wouldn't give her any shape. And she knew that the judges would read her for it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, it would have been great to see that sort of reference point on like a major reality TV show. It's such... It's so different from what most places were doing at this time. I'm I'm surprised that there's not been a, a runway inspired by this on a national drag competition. Um, I'm assuming any pageant in Australia it. will any pageant in Australia will probably have a Priscilla round where it's like you have to come out because the flip flop is iconic. But going through this entire thing, there is like at least ten or fifteen things that if you saw it, you'd immediately be like, "That's Priscilla." I mean, yeah. the, the closing sequence of finally, all of the costumes there are incredible. And actually, I think this film won an Oscar at the Academy Awards the next year for costuming. I think it was the only Oscar it won, but I think it deserved that. For deserved. They are amazing. Deserved. Going back a little bit, I kind of mentioned there about Felicia liking the attention. One line that I noted was she says, I like seeing people get hot headed. It gives me a kick. What do you guys think of that? That this Felicia's quite bold for a, a, a queer person back then to like the attention of being in drag. It must have been, whereas someone like Mitzi is very much a bit more fearful. I think that is something that that makes perfect sense to me because Felicia is a very attractive guy out of drag. So she is used to attention. And I, you see that a lot nowadays, even in like the modern drag scene. Like, pretty twinks will get into drag and they love the attention because they're used to getting attention. And I think quite often you find that people who maybe are less typically attractive out of drag are maybe a bit more uncomfortable because they're used to being uncomfortable around crowds, whereas people who are used to getting positive attention just see any attention positively. And I think the film actually does quite a good sort of nuance of how like Mitzi's very uncomfortable at first and as soon as the attention's positive you see her like high-fiving with people and chatting with them and having fun but she's obviously apprehensive about the concept of it but once she gets into it because it's positive she loves it. I read into it in a totally different way which was I read it in terms of like um, levels of wanting to rock the boat per se and because um Mitzi is the middle she's had she's she's met some level of discrimination of hate of backlash for being who she is in the world so she's mm-hmm. now got to a place where she's like whatever I can do to not rock the boat to just get along with my day I'll do it because it serves me that I don't have to kind of face this backlash whereas yeah. being a young and naive person Felicia's kind of like not really seen the the reality of the amount of hate that she might get and we see a little bit of this later with the the scene where she gets in trouble but yeah. to me it screams of that thing of younger people are a bit more um raucous in their 
ideals and they're they're willing to go further because they're kind of like balls to the wall i'm gonna i'm gonna fight for this with everything that i've got because they don't quite know some of the ramifications that come with that because they don't have the lived experience and you see it like Metsy, Metsy's kind of like this is a bad idea and I know it's a bad idea but I've just got enough um, like fight in me to do it anyway and Bernadette's like absolutely not <laughs> like I'm not, get, I'm not getting dragged to walk down the street because I lost a dare because she has that lived experience of my well-being is important enough that I'm not doing this just for fun yeah. that's the way that I read into that entire thing yeah and here's the thing like it's, it's a fun moment to see these drag queens out in the daytime drag in a in a in a heteronormative little town that's a fun kind of culture clash there but i'm just glad that this film gave it a there's a reason for that there was this card <laughs> game that she lost it's not like two yeah. wong fu where they're choosing to be in drag because that is so unrealistic but we've been through that and there were we're now on this film <laughs> also um uh the song in the background at least for bridges i love the nightlife iconic I want to pick up on, so the phrase that um, you mentioned was when Felicia said that she likes to see people hot-headed, and that is something that we've not really addressed yet, which is the antagonism of Felicia towards Bernadette by consistently using her um, mm-hmm. dead name. She keeps dropping the Ralph bomb, and mm-hmm. actually, even earlier in the movie, when they're on the bus, at one point you see Felicia singing a song which has the T word as mm-hmm. one of the lyrics. And then obviously we also have the discussion of Bernadette as a transsexual and not using the word transgender. There's a lot of discussion that can be had around the language that's there, I think. Um, One of the main points I want to make is that I think it's fine in this context, A, because it was the 90s and that was the more common term, the transsexual was what was being used. And even then, nowadays there's a bit of a movement to reclaim that word by trans women who have had surgery and like transsexual is an identity that they can take on as well as being transgender so the language there I don't really see the problem Felicia as far as I'm concerned is just a young arsehole who doesn't realize that what she is saying has such an impact on Bernadette because I think a lot of drag queens I find have a bit of an ambivalent approach to like dead names or government names because it's annoying when someone uses theirs, but it doesn't hurt. Whereas for me, I'm like, you say that name in front of me, I will fucking punch you. And it's, it's like, it hurts. I, I, like, I mean, you both know how antagonistic I have always been about people using that name. I, I don't like it. It's always bothered me. Mm. Um, even even before you were like openly trans with like yourself yeah. or with us, you just never liked I, it. I, I never. And obviously it makes sense now. And with Bernadette, I think her reaction, I think maybe to some people it may, would maybe seem overblown if they don't have any lived or personal experience of what it's like. But she has a response that I, as soon as she was like really properly angry and when later on they get drunk and she starts trying to fight with Felicia, I'm like, yep, that's a perfectly valid response and I support her fully and I hope she gives her a black eye. I guess that kind of feeds into what Felicia's story arc is, that she starts the film as a very, I guess the word is like hubris, like it's youthful arrogance, that she yeah. is a young gay, she thinks she can do what she likes. but then She, she thinks lo- everything is up for grabs when it comes to like, if I can make fun of my past trauma, why can't I make fun of yours? Yeah. It's not tit for tat. 
And I think yeah. she learns that there is a consequence to her behavior with what happens later on. And I guess that the assumption is she's a more a rounded person who's learned her lessons by the end of the film. But yes, let's move on. So one scene that I love going back to Bernadette is her teaching us some tricks of being an alcoholic where she steals the booze and then replaces it with water and uses tea bags to darken it to make it look like whiskey, which is incredible. Which is a trick that we should be using on our next Bingo visit, Rachel. <laughs> One line as well that I like is that Felicia mentions that she was a, a snap champion at her all-boys school. And all I can say is that all-boys school, that explains a lot here. Um, and I can attest to that as well. Uh, but yes, they decide to go out. And once again, Mitzi is the least enthused by that notion. And they enter a very dingy pub, which completely silences when they enter. And there's, of course, that uh, disgusting woman, old shell. What have we got here, eh? A couple of showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't have it. We've got nothing for people like you. Nothing. It's, it's an uncomfortable scene. And I think it's interesting that basically what happens is Bernadette comes out with this sassy read that is, now listen here, you mullet. Why mullet. don't you just light your tampon off and blow your box apart? Because it's the only bang you're ever going to get, sweetheart. And of course, the whole, um, the whole pub roars with laughter. And after this, it seems like they're accepting of them because they've... I guess, asserted themselves. The thing for me, this scene was a bit, it, it, again, retrospectively, it just felt a bit uncomfortable because it's like, this bar is clearly full of entirely men and Cheryl. And it's that thing of like, oh, Cheryl has asserted herself as like a minority that is fine because, you know, they've accepted her or whatever. It, it becomes like a dog fight a wee bit because it's like, a room full of men and it's the women versus the LGBTQ plus representation who will come out on top and will it will it like be acceptable to the patriarchy of men in this bar like no. when Cheryl uh, has the read said against her it's like the men laughing is like a, okay you've proven yourself to be worthy of being in our presence which was it's such a minor thing but when you read into it, it's kind of like we have done something Thing to be pleasing to you therefore we are allowed to be here no we're allowed to be here because we're allowed to be here and you can fucking suck it up and deal with it <laughs> i yeah i completely agree with you cj i think that it's such a it is really interesting to watch the dynamics at play of how uh like i presume says het woman is using homophobia and transphobia to gain acceptance from a crowd and it's this really interesting thing of um, assimilation and acceptance. She has chosen to just become part of that culture and be just as homophobic and transphobic and presumably sexist and racist as the rest of that crowd would be so that they accept her. And you kind of see the juxtaposition of this in a later scene where um, when the bus breaks down and we have Mr. and Mrs. Spencer who turn up to help realise that it's a bunch of freaky drag queens and scoot off. And then we have an, um, someone from like an indigenous tribe having a party and invites them along. And you see the difference here of um, a crowd that sort of makes their own. Um, they don't rules. choose to, yeah, they make their own rules. They don't choose to be part of that culture. They just have their own existence and are happy with it and are therefore happy to accept other weirdos or outcasts. Whereas in this scene, we have someone who can only gain 
any sort of standing in life by assimilating, which is quite sad in a way. Um, I guess it's kind of a bit like at school where the only way you could survive was by like being mean and I guess in a way like bullying each other because you had to kind of assert dominance somehow and that if you did not bully you became bullied that was the only way you could really survive that's the vibe that we get from Cheryl definitely I do also think it's really interesting that even like with Bernadette primarily being a trans woman but also as a drag queen the it's really interesting to see the story play out that Drag queens can be accepted as long as they play the role of the court jester. She gets accepted because she's funny. And then as soon as they walk out of the bar, we see that it says AIDS fuckers go home on the bus. And it's like the court jester is not really accepted. They're there because they're entertaining, but they're not part of the group. And that is such an interesting play. That's a great, great point. And I think that kind of, that scene in itself pretty much destroys the entire moral of Tu Wong Fu that it's oh we can support gays because they'll um, entertain us but actually no you're not really you're, you're just tolerating them you're not actually accepting them and real tolerance comes into letting everyone be part of the party and not just if they're there to entertain you. The fact that like when they walk out and they see that on the bus it is dealt with in a, a much better way than the other film because it we see the response that it has on these people. It's not like a, oh, that's mean, next scene. Like, it, yeah. they're, they're, it hangs for enough moments of levity that you're like, this has an effect on people. This has yeah. an effect on the human that you are, like, having, you're, you're hurling abuse at someone because you think they deserve it, but we get to see it, like, the person who's had abuse hurled at them, it really does affect them. And it's not just, yeah. a, it's not just a plot point to be like, they are facing discrimination. It's to show that they are humans and how this will affect them, yeah. which I like. Yeah. The line that Mitzi says is, uh, no matter how tough I'm getting, it still hurts. And I think that's very powerful. A perfect line. Really. I think as well, it also touches on the fact that this is in the 90s, this is at the tail end of the AIDS crisis, and this is when we're seeing that even if, because none of the characters ever talk about it, it doesn't seem as if any of them have any direct dealings with the like HIV or AIDS, but just existing as a queer person during this time meant that you were tarred with that brush by people who hated you and were seen as dirty. You were basically seen as a leper in a lot of places and it didn't matter whether you did or didn't have any connection with it. You were dirty just by association. Um, So for a movie that isn't at all about HIV or AIDS, I think it's really good that they made that point, no matter how subtly it was. Well, it's literally like written across in not huge layers. Subtle. It's not that subtle. <laughs> it's subtle for okay, October Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it was in caps lock, so it was. If you've that not was written it on subtle. your body in red sharpie, then it's not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna reveal it on stage. <laughs> and also, I'm wearing I think a jock find... strap and body paint. It's a message. Uh, <laughs> and also, I think you'll find that it's a black sharpie because it reads better on stage. Thank oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but back to the pub scene. Uh, after the queens have been accepted, we have um, Felicia dancing on the table. We have Mitzi drunkenly selling her Whoa Man products. Whoa Man. And Bernadette having a shot contest with Shirley. Um, big Oktoberfest energy. <laughs> very, very big Oktoberfest. Uh, grumpy old alcoholic trans woman. Is there? 
has there ever been a better definition for Octoberfest? I don't think so. <laughs> Demanding I, a stolen lemonade at the bar. <laughs> I'm going to start asking for a double stolen lemonade. In that voice, I'd like a stoli and lemonade, please. Just monotone sass. <laughs> no, I think, I think I'll just go with yelling, double stoli and lemonade. <laughs> right. Sounds better. So they leave this town and they take a shortcut. And of course, there's that surreal scene. Um, Which is fully Verka Serduchka Eurovision fantasy. Very, it's very that. Fu- like, that's what Eurovision needs. These scenes, because it happens again where she's on the, the top of the van performing. She's doing Act One from La Traviata for any of you opera nerds uh-huh. out there. And I, I think it's interesting where she's kind of queering the landscape in a sense. And I think it's that contrast of this kind of surreal, queer, artsy figure with this vast Australian outback. Is I it guess, queering the canon, Rajazel? Shut up. <laughs> I mean that nature and especially like a wilderness is quite a masculine idea. And it's, you know what I mean? And it's, the, it's that kind of contrast and especially Australia as being, as I said before, is this kind of grisly, gritty, rough country with these kind of flamboyant characters. I think it's that it's, I think it's the juxtaposition uh, exactly. of one state on the other. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm trying to say here. And I also think it's very interesting that this is my um, tinfoil hat theory, which works quite well with Felicia's costume. Uh, she actually just got sunstroke doing that performance and the rest of the movie is just her fever dream while she is like in the throes of confusion. Wild. Wow. (laughs) Could you imagine being on top of a bus in the Australian desert in that heat in full like metallics and tinfoil? Reflective silver. I'm sorry. She would definitely have had sunstroke from that. There is no way about it. I'm, I'm not... I don't believe that she continued to function as a human being after that. Maybe it was in the early morning where there's sunshine, but no heat. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. But let's move on. Let's quickly discuss the rather weird scene that is the flashback of Felicia's child abuse. Whoa, that was dark. And I don't, like, it's a really weird one because it's kind of almost too long through and it's, oh, here's a really heavy subject matter. Okay, let's just move on. Like, <laughs> I, I, I think it's another representation of like something that is dark but has the the, the rose tinted glasses. The the the, yeah. the 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 remembering it in your own way is her adding comedy to it at the end. Yeah, because um, I don't think that would happen if you pull the plug in the bath. Your penis will not get sucked in the drain. That doesn't happen. No, it was his balls, not his penis, or whatever his balls. I I don't think that would happen. The water does not like suck down that quickly. How small are his balls if he can fit down the tube? I think it's meant to be that like the hair has got caught on the drain and he's stuck. That's, I, that's what I read into it. Not that I've watched many a scene akin to that, but that's what I'm mm-hmm. assuming. I don't think uh-huh. it's possible. I think, Try, in name, yeah, I think, Rujazzle, in the name of science, you should follow through on the movie's um, themes and motifs and try it yourself. Uh, but it's very that thing of like, that's a dark scene, but it, I think enough is said about it that it's not yeah. too long through like throwaway. It, yeah, especially when the, the context to it is Mitzi being like, what happened to young Adam that he turned out like such a this? And it's kind of like a tongue in cheek. I, I read into it that, that thing of back in the day, they said like, like gay men only turned out gay because they suffered some kind of sexual abuse as a young person 
And I think it kind of like kills that theory because it's like, yeah, but I, I, I didn't follow through with what they said. Like, it wasn't like, a, oh, I was forced to do this. He like was right on the tip of that. And there was like, no, no, no. Like, I, I think it kind of busts that myth in a comedic way. Yeah, it's literally like, I was confronted with um, the potential of sexual abuse and I chose to abuse them back instead. Yeah, it's, it's very like, re- reclaiming that myth of, um, exactly. oh, you're only gay because you abused a child. It's like, no, I was about to be and then I abused him, but I'm still gay anyway. Yeah. And actually the next scene kind of um, connects this in a way. It's where the, they're driving, the car then stalls and they are literally stuck in the middle of nowhere. So Felicia decides to paint the van with this lavender paint and she says, nothing like a fresh frock to brighten up your day. And I guess that connects the idea that even through the darkest of times, you can cover it with a coat of paint and you can kind of cover up the darkness with a, with a bit of like brightness and sparkle. That is Sally Starshine's tagline. Nothing like a new <laughs> frock to brighten up your day. We love a frock. Also, um, I just want to touch very quickly, I'm sorry, the tartan overalls that he is wearing while he's painting. I need them immediately and I need him in them. That's the best moment of the film. What I will say is that this How much do you want really... to fuck a guy Pierce? Fucking hell, CJ. <laughs> uh, he's, he's connecting to Scotland. He's wearing green and blue tartan overalls. Please, I'll take them and I'll take him. <laughs> this, this was the scene that really cemented to me that these three characters are just us three. Because whilst there's a tragedy going on, the bus is broken down, Mitzi's like, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go rehearse my number away from everyone else. Very rujazzle. Very me. I just need to go and learn my lyrics. I know, <laughs> I know Mother Tucker's tech issues are playing up, but I need to go and listen to my lyrics. Then we have CJ, who has decided to start doing fucking home decor in oversized. Which is the Mother Tucker game. <laughs> and... All the whilst I have decided to traipse through the Australian outback to go and find some help, just out of sheer indignance. I'm like, I can't deal with you. I'm going. Going to find the manager. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the three. That's it playing out in real life. She's put on her Webster Victoria. She's going to go and speak to the manager. <laughs> just call me Karen. Once again, I think this scene really shows off the the beauty and the terrifying vastness of the Australian outback. And as you see, October Bernadette goes off to find help uh, from this straight couple. But right off the bat, when they see Mitzi and Drag, they hit that, accelerate and drive off. I did find it quite interesting that um, as they're approaching her, the exact line that uh, Mrs. Spencer says is, oh, it looks like a woman. And I'm like, that is a very poignant line for um, two transphobic homophobes to be rolling up to a trans woman in the desert and hit out with that. I was like, that was a very well-worded line. It looks like a woman. You're right. It speaks to so much of what, like, on the face of it, yes, that is true. She's a woman. But the use of the word it at the start of that sentence, it really hits home this idea that trans people and drag queens and gender non-conforming people are not seen as real people. It's an it. It's not a person. And it's just, it's just so much packed human. into... Yeah, it was so much packed into that one line, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. And then the fact that she has to sit in the back with the decaying kangaroo carcass. I know, like, I know. Talk Like, following on from that line really goes in hard with the dehumanisation. And it is such a sort of minor thing, but it really, yeah, it really hit home. I find that there's two scenes where they're eating kangaroos 
or there's like a dead kangaroo because there's the scene here with the dead kangaroo and then there's a scene later with those guys that beat up Felicia where they're eating a kangaroo and I wonder is that about kangaroo as a kind of symbol of Australia and these white straight people who think that they are the true Australians but in reality they're kind of destroying or eating, eating away at what makes Australia up I don't know that that could be a complete like bizarre theory I don't know I like that I think I, we're going to see the exact same thing, but like by consuming Australia and as this kangaroo makes them the most Australian. I think they're they're both valid points. The I, I like the idea of the white man comes along and starts devouring what makes Australia Australia. I'm I'm into that theory. Hmm. Yes. Can we also talk about Mitzi doing the choreography? Fully me choreographing any mother tucker suck number. It's like <laughs> it's two bounces before the first step. <laughs> and then you have me just in the back looking so dour faced the entire time like uh, we, we did this for the last group number no, <laughs> but yes uh, so they're they're trapped in this uh, deserted place overnight and they decide to practice their routine for the show which of course is rather aptly i will survive because of course they're both trying to survive being trapped in the middle of nowhere and also survive being queer people in quite a hostile country. And this is where they meet the group of Aborigines. One of them, the, the one that greets them says, nice night for it. And I guess from that, I maybe suggested maybe he's queer. What do you guys think? There was definitely anglings of him being um, himself. Well, well, you've spoken about it, like these people are all outsiders. But mm-hmm. the fact that he is immediately, he sees exactly what they're doing and he's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's not a problem. What you're doing, it's a nice night for it. So he's yeah. definitely like amicable towards their struggle, I guess, whether yeah. he understands it or not. And the thing that I found really interesting was that when they start like performing and everything, first of all, where the hell did they get their costumes from? Because they had walked a fair distance. So... I found that quite questionable when they just whipped out the headpieces and the jumpsuits. I was like, okay, interesting. Oh, you've got a jumpsuit like that shoved up inside you. I've got it right now. <laughs> Especially the wide leg at the bottom. That's, you know, it's a foldable. It just as um, sort of farcical as it was to just in the three seconds in between the first chorus and the second verse to have him get up and drag and start performing with them. Like, obviously not practical but i love that it really hits this point of like cultural exchange and it's like yeah we're all outsiders so we can come together we'll help you you can show us what you do and it was just really it's a really nice scene that one i really really liked it i love you it. see it as well because they start playing the didgeridoo over the top yeah. of the song and, and it's like and it's a mashup as well. of culture yeah, yeah. Okay. i i love that scene so much and i think again it kind of feeds back into my whole theory that this film is about what what is it to be Australian? And if anything, the Aborigines are the true Australians in the same way the Native Americans are the real Americans. But they, in the same way as queer people, they have been uh, tossed aside and discriminated, and they're kind of they're they're seen as invisible, like it's not like they don't exist. And I like this connection, and I think this is kind of a vision of how Australia could be. That it's this fabulous coming together of all these cultures and all these different ideas and inspirations that is kind of stopped by the mainstream cis-het populace. I mean, see what happens when you get rid of white cis-het people? I'm just saying, the movie <laughs> makes a great point. 
not advocating for anything, just saying. The abatard thing. Can we talk? <laughs> Completely can nuts. We, can we discuss? I love very, it. I think it's just crazy. I thought very he was going to say it was like a, a kidney stone that he'd like got rid of and kept. <laughs> and, and it looks like a stone. I don't know what Agnetha has been eating, but she needs to get on a better diet because <laughs> that looks hard. Also, um, just on the ABBA point, at the point that they're doing the rehearsals and Bernadette just goes, no more fucking ABBA. Really feel that when I see you two. <laughs> how, how, how can she be part of the career community and not like ABBA? Does not compute. No, I don't see it. And what I love is that as soon, at the end of the film, as soon as Bernadette leaves the group, what is the first ABBA song number. that Mitzi and uh, Felicia do? ABBA. <laughs> that is you two at suck doing the final number. It's like, do we have time? Can we do, can we do the ABBA Megamix yet? Cut, cut our second numbers, we're just going to do a duet. <laughs> God. Okay, let's move on. The next scene, I think, is the only part of the film that I think makes me cringe. And that is the character of Cynthia, who is Bob, the repairman's wife. Of course, Bob comes and rescues the queens. And then they, they stay with them for, I guess, a night or so. And Cynthia is an Asian character. She's got broken English. She acts kind of manic. And Bob tells her what she can and can't do, like perform. She has his desire to perform, but he tells her she can't. We find out that Bob is a fan of the Lay Girls, which I think are actually like a real thing in Australia. I didn't know that. And which, of course, Bernadette was once a part of that troupe. And he encourages them to perform in this small town. Of course, they perform in this little pub. And Bob is the only one who enjoys it. Everyone else is pretty horrified. Cynthia then appears in this costume and she does this, I guess, strip act type thing, I suppose. And the bar loves this much more than the Queen's, but yet Bob is deeply, deeply embarrassed. And of course, there's the, the iconic but problematic scene where she's firing ping pong balls from her pussy before being dragged off by Bob. What, what do you guys think of this character of Cynthia? I mean, I love any woman who can reclaim her femininity by the use of three ping pong balls. That is, that is admirable. But um, it's... I think I found the whole situation with Bob a lot more problematic until we got to the part later on in the film where it comes out that it almost seems like he was drunkenly tricked into marrying her. Um, That seems to be the implication of the later scene. So Bob, I can kind of understand this sort of... Manhandling and dragging a woman through a pub is not acceptable in any capacity but I can understand why he has a sort of shame or embarrassment about it I can understand it it doesn't make it justifiable in my opinion but I think the main issue really is the not even so much the acting of Cynthia but just the fact that that character exists like I feel like I don't think her character being that ostentatious and crazy for lack of a better word I don't think it adds anything to the no. movie and I think it is just there for the sake of a bit of wackiness and it, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it aged well at all. No, it really didn't. And I, I don't I think I heard somewhere that the filmmaker said that if they that that's the one part of the film they regret and if they were like to do it again they would not include her because as you say like she really her role has no purpose other than comedy and I feel like yeah. Bob 
could exist without her. Obviously, he plays a role in the plot as he saves them, and then he becomes a, a romantic character for Bernadette. But she wasn't necessary, and I feel like it's just a problematic and pretty racist stereotype of an over-sexualized Asian woman. Um, at one point later on, Bernadette calls her a mail-order bride, which is not a great uh, thing to say. And yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not a great character. I, I think it's, yeah. yes, we can joke and we can laugh about the whole, the ping-pong scene and all that kind of stuff, but I think it's, it, it, tra- it traces back into a problematic stereotype of Asian women being seen as kind of sexually frustrated and in some way, I, there's all these horrible things you that in the past people would assume about the anatomy of Asian women being different and it's just deeply, deeply uh, racist. The things for me, um, I, I, I try to imagine like if Cynthia was played by a non-Asian character, if this character had been written as just another Australian and it was seen as a, a, a marriage that was in, like, but so you said like the male order thing is an offensive thing, but from that I gleaned that that is the dynamic of their relationship. Their, their relationship was not a traditional, you meet, you date, you fall in love, you get married. It's something akin to, like you said, being tricked into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most offensive part of Cynthia's whole portrayal is when um, they're performing at the bar and she's you know going crazy and she breaks open that cupboard it's underscored with generic asian style music and that for me is the most egregious part of her portrayal it's like she she can't handle herself because she's so crazy and stuff and that is very very deeply um troubling the thing for me is i on the rewatch the the whole film sets Bob up to be like this loving romantic interest but watching it again and how he treats her it kind of ruins him ever being a likable character for me because when you're watching it even if he has been tricked into this marriage he's before these three drag queens turned up in the scene he's clearly gone along with it enough that they're living together they're trying to make it work but that doesn't excuse the fact that he like keeps her locked up um, the way that he speaks to her at the dinner table, like, yes, they may be troubled in their relationship, but I don't think that justifies the way he is treating this woman. Um, yeah. I think that it seems like a kidnap situation, like she's locked up and only brought out when he needs her. And it, for me, it kind of ruins him as the good guy of this film a wee bit. And I think the the only saving grace for her is the zebra print costume. It's just <laughs> so good. The hat, the zebra print song, the, the gauntlets. It's the best part of her portrayal. I mean, I think she's she is purely there for comedy. That is her purpose. And maybe the... I mean, it's quite, it's quite a long film. It's not a short film. It's almost two hours long. I, I don't think you could take her out and it would literally make no difference. The fact that her ping pong balls were locked away suggests that she has done this thing before and he's trying to stop her but she must get some kind of sexual kick out of doing it that he is not fond of. It's, it's, it's not great. I guess the only good conclusion here is that Cynthia leaves and that she picks her own destiny and she escapes from it. So I guess it's a good thing for her, but yeah, yeah not, not great overall. What I gleaned from this was that Bob and Bob has, because we know that Bob is a fan of lay girls, he's a fan of going to see showgirls. 
So mm-hmm. I, I, I read into this that like he saw her at a show and somehow ended up marrying her and she did not want to be taken away from this life of performing and has been, you know, sub like put in this wife and loving marriage role that she never asked for, never wanted. Um, so well, I guess it is a good conclusion that at the end she is able to leave and go back to doing what she wants to. It's one of the yeah. few redeeming qualities of her entire storyline. Yeah, I think the only purpose that her character really serves, because as you say, I, if I try and imagine the film without her, then Bob is just like guy living in a like small town who enjoys seeing showgirl shows and then goes along with these uh, queens and starts to have a thing with Bernadette and his storyline is a lot cleaner and it portrays him in a much better light if Cynthia's character is removed. The only only benefit I see of her existing in this movie is that the drag queens do not go down well in the town when they perform and then Cynthia walks in and we see that she is very well received so then we can see that it's not a sexism thing, it's like a homophobia thing as to why they aren't receptive to the queens. Yeah. But did we really need that spelled out for us? I wasn't looking at that crowd thinking that they were necessarily hating on the queens because they were sexist. It reads that there's homophobia, transphobia at play here. So I, I, Last I point really on as well is um, it's a conversation we have a lot of the time, which is, is the representation of her as an Asian person more important than if she'd been taken out? Like, is, is including someone Asian because there's no other Asian characters in this, is the representation important enough But you say, like, the stereotypes that she falls into? Yes, representation's important, but arguably not when you're portraying them in this way. I think, yeah. although I love this film, and I'm going to give it, like, a high rating at the end, the the the... the this film this is, 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 a, is a 9 out of 10 for me because of her. It would be a 10 out of 10, but because of that character, it, yeah. that bothers me that much. I think she's one of the worst portrayals of an Asian person in cinema history. Uh, yeah, I think um, you'd rather have no representation than bad representation <laughs> when there's good representation out there as well. If, like yeah. In the 80s and ni- early 90s, before movies like this, by and large, a lot of LGBT representation was pretty shoddy. So you kind of just took what you could get. Whereas there are plenty of positive Asian role models. Um, like Asia is making its own movies at this time. So it's not as if this character exists as the sole representation of Asian women. And therefore, I don't think she serves anything. And everyone would be better off if she wasn't included, except the actor herself, obviously. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, moving on, uh, the next little scene we have is we've got a flashback of Bernadette's childhood, of her swapping presents with her sister at Christmas time. I'd love to know what your thoughts on this scene were, October. Um, I thought it was a very simplistic and redundant representation of transness. Um, Yes, that can be an aspect of it that a lot of trans people as children see the way that the other gender are treated and think, oh, that that resonates with me more. But the idea that A, trans people are, they use their transness as a reason to, or their transness as a justification of like stealing basically from other people. Because there's often narratives of like closeted trans women who like steal their mum or their sister's clothes and wear them. And 
it's always this like why do why does the story have to have like a sort of ill intent around it why does there have to be theft or manipulation involved and it's also just a bit like there's more to being trans than wanting a doll it, it just I, I maybe reading too much into it but it's like come no on, your, your it's point just, is it's just that very simplistic your point is valid because obviously you're a trans person and I, we are not but um yeah i think again like we're looking at it in in a historical the sense always being farcical as well yeah, yeah, either being farcical and B, this film was made 26 years ago. So that is a maybe a way of explaining what it's like being trans to an audience that is not trans. So I can, I can understand why, why it's there. Um, but yeah, it's very reductive. Yeah, I think that's a fair way of putting it. Because besides, the only reason I point out the stuff about the sort of theft or manipulation being a common trope is because it's that it's, it's common... And any a single instance of it's not really a problem. It's more a problem that that is such a recurring trend amongst trans stories being told by cis people. So it, it's part of a wider problem, that side of it. But the idea of a lot of trans people are young and want what they see the opposite gender being treated like or what presents are given, that is a common thing. That is, like, it's not inaccurate. It's just overly simplistic, I would say. So... I don't think it's a terrible representation. It's just, it could be a bit more nuanced. But as you say, it's probably just a quick explanation to an audience who have no understanding. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's trans 101, I guess. Yeah. So the queens arrive in a small mining town and Bob warns them that's a very dangerous place. Of course, Felicia being a, a arrogant little thing, she disobeys them. And she goes out trying to, I suppose, pass as female, I suppose, in this sense. She's trying to act quite feminine. And she goes out to, she goes out to meet people and starts talking to some men before they realise, I think they clock her hands or her, I don't know, her muscles. And they realise that she's a man. She then runs away, but is kind of encouraging them to chase her. She's very, very bold. Um, and of course, yeah. they beat her up. Now, Bob, of course, saves her. But I will say, as we were saying earlier about Bob, is he a good person or not? He initially doesn't, like, he he denies knowing her. Like, Felicia sees him there with the men. He turns away, like, as if, like, ignoring her. And he only, he only saves her when it's very much that she needs to be saved or she will be killed. I think it's interesting to see that she... I mean, first of all, I want to talk about the fact that the thing that gives her away is her when she lifts her hand up. And I'm like, oh, so the big massive biceps or the five o'clock shadow were not the indicators. It was her. <laughs> it was her forearm. Okay, that's interesting. Maybe it um, was a hairy forearm. It was a hairy forearm. I think that's what it was. I think it was the hairy arms. But then again, yeah. some women have hairy arms. Like, I'm exactly. strange. So, um, so that was odd, but whatever. Minor point. Um, the thing that I find interesting about Bob is that is quite an accurate portrayal. If you are um, says het or if you are says het passing, then when visibly queer people are uh, come under duress, it is very easy and all too common that other people just put their head down because they don't want to be victimised. Because I don't think it's out of disdain for Felicia. It's because he wants to save his own back. And it's only when it's truly dangerous for Felicia that he does step in um, because 
oh, if Felicia just makes an arse of herself, then that's fine. He can let her live with those consequences. But he does step in when it is truly dangerous for her. So there is a bit of a kudos there. But also, it would it would make everyone's life a lot easier if those of us who have privilege stepped up and made noise for others who don't have privilege in situations before they get too extreme. It would be beneficial to all of us who are, exist in very visibly queer lives. It, we would benefit so much more if people like Bob would step up and speak before we started getting abused and assaulted by other people. But at least he bothered to in the end. So true. five out of 10 for Bob's behavior here. <laughs> I don't know. You, you've raised such a good point there. It's that thing of like, Bob in that moment is kind of like if I get involved just now will all that hate get directed at me um, which he knows it, it will um, I don't know there, there, there's, there's nothing that really Bob because that's the thing it's that thing of Bob has said to her like do not leave or you will get hassled so he's kind of like you've disobeyed my advice yeah, you've asked for hell, it hell mend you but then he does step in later on. Um, it's a t- that's a that's a tough scene to watch. Mm. It's very uncomfortable. Like very much. I think, obviously, as a white person, like the situations with like Cynthia and everything, it's very uncomfortable. But it doesn't hit home for me personally, just because um, like racial stereotypes are not really something I've ever had to deal with. Obviously, whereas a scene like this, like watching a visibly queer person being attacked and assaulted for being queer it's very difficult to watch because I have been in similar situations I've seen my friends be in similar situations it's very uncomfortable yeah it's hard watching definitely but one thing I did like is that once again when the the queens are in a very difficult and scary situation with lots of straight people Bernadette kind of comes in and saves the day in a way there's that horrible homophobic guy who's sort of taunting them saying come and fuck me whatever and she um punches him in the gut and says now you're fucked which i loved and i guess it's kind of showing that bernadette because she's the oldest and in a way as a trans person is the most discriminated she is in the way the toughest because she's had to deal with the most yeah and she she just she has a, a real tough side to her I think it's, it's, it's worth noting that that is a common use of attack for homophobes is they're kind of obsessed with the idea that queers want to fuck them and that they, they're that self-obsessed that they think, oh, all these, all these gays and whatever, they, they just want to have sex with me. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me that not once in my life have I ever had homophobic abuse from someone that was in any capacity attractive. Like... <laughs> They're only ever ugly, and as you say, self-obsessed. And I think it's, if you dehumanise someone, it's much easier to think, well, they must find me desirable because I'm a normal person, and they're not normal, so I am desirable to you because I'm not a freak. And it's like, you're boring as fuck, and that's even worse than being a freak in my book, so piss off, you little reprobate. It's very good, Shane, where it's like, I may be the lowest of the low in straight people, but that still makes me better than the most attractive gay person or trans person. It's very that. The next scene I really like, and I think it's kind of a turning point for especially Felicia's character, and it's where uh, Bernadette is talking about Sydney, and the line that she says, obviously, that Sydney is their home, it's where they've come from, and she says, 
In its own strange way, it takes care of us, as in the city. I don't know if that ugly wall of suburbia has been put there to stop them getting in or us getting out. Don't let it drag you down, let it toughen you up. And I guess what, what, that's, what, what, what that line is about is about the idea of home and queer people often throughout history have always had an area of a city where they feel safe, that kind of queer quarter, because they need that to be protected. Um, and that when they leave that, they are, are instantly putting their lives at risk. And I think they've yeah. realised that Sydney for them is a protective home and they feel safe mm-hmm. there. Even though it's not perfect, as we saw in the earlier scenes, it's a home at least. I think it's very relatable um, as someone who has lived basically their entire life in Glasgow. Um, people always have this expectation that Glasgow is such a sort of difficult or rough or rowdy city. And yeah, it can be. But there's not many other places that I would rather live because I know that for all the grimy sides of it, Glasgow is a city where it's safe for me to walk around as a trans woman who is very visibly trans. And I don't really get much. Like, yeah, people say more shit than when I was perceived as just a gay guy. But I'm never really all that concerned. I have to keep my head about me and think, mm, is this the right street to walk down at this point? But it's still a more or less safe city to live in. And I think that's kind of the realisation they have about Sydney. For all the problems that they've had with it, going outside of that boundary, you realise, well, oh, actually, what we had, it might not be great, but unfortunately, it's the best that we can get just now. So it kind of gives you something to celebrate about something that you didn't think was good before which is a, a nice silver lining to take from what is a pretty horrible thing that happened to Felicia, I guess. If we're talking about like the idea of home, is that thing of we as queer people, our home is not based on our family's blood home because sometimes those are not the relationships that we continue throughout our life, but that home is where you make it. And I think that for them, like Sydney is home, but this bus is home because it's a safe space that they can share together. And that idea of, home not being a position or a location but the community that you surround yourself with so in Sydney they have a home because there is a loving supportive community but that that they can take their home wherever they are as long as they surround themselves with the right people. I, I hate that I have to keep on going back to it but to compare once again to Wong Fu that's a similarity in the plot where at the end of the film the queens do return home to whence they came and I think the, I think we might explore this theme quite a lot in these movies about the idea of home for queer people. Yeah, I think the sorry the I think the driving point of this entire scene is that as someone who is visibly part of a minority, you are going to get shit, and I would love to think that that will change, but I think it's just going to get lesser and lesser. I don't think these issues will ever fully go away. Um, at least not in our lifetimes, I don't think. Um, being sad, I don't realistic. think. But there is something that you can reap from it. You can, you can develop strength from these horrendous situations because it's all that you can do to reap some sort of benefit from it. And it's better to take something from these situations than just let it negatively affect you. And it's fair to let it negatively affect you. It should. It is not a nice thing to go through, but. If you can get something positive from it, then being able to make something good out of these horrid moments is its the best you can do with it. Yeah. 
So the queens finally arrive in Alice Springs and Mitzi is reunited with her uh, very charismatic and pretty awesome ex-wife. And they have quite a real connection and she meets her son. And there's a scene where the the ex-wife has a woman there and I kind of thought that was maybe her girlfriend, but then the son mentions that they that she had a girlfriend. I don't know. We're definitely I think we're definitely meant to glean that this was our marriage, not just to help him hide his sexuality, but also to help her hide hers. Yes. We, we are led to believe that she is, if not bisexual, a lesbian. And I think as well, um, like the sexuality of a lot of the characters is kind of left quite open. Um, like, is Mitzi actually gay or is he bisexual? Is she a lesbian? Is she bisexual? Like, it's never really, there's not so much of a fixation of putting labels onto things because it's more just about these pe- these are people and they live their lives and you might call them gay, but he ha- has a wife and they have a yeah. child together. So, like, See, when when Mitzi's given his like her explanation, being like, "Oh, we got married," and then the bank account ran dry, and blah blah blah, he gives it such a negative spin when he's explaining it to Bernadette, and he's like, "Oh, it was never a love thing; it was just for this and for that." But then when we see the two of them together, they clearly have a connection, and yeah. we are left saying like. I, through your rose-tinted glasses, you're saying, oh yeah, I just married her for the money and whatever. But we see that there was definitely some love there. It's just a question of was it a romantic love or was it a, a friendship kind of thing. Yeah. But I, I think it's a good point that everything's left unanswered when it comes to sexuality because labels are important in some circumstances, but not in this. We don't need to know what their sexuality is. We just need to know that they're happy and respectful. Yeah, I think labels are always helpful to help someone define and understand themselves but labels are for someone to be able to know who they are and it's not necessarily for them to be able like you don't need to be able to explain yourself to other people you're not you should never be held to that expectation so it's nice that the characters leave a lot of these things open like things like Bernadette being as they say a transsexual is something that comes up and is discussed but her sexuality is never touched on. We know that she was in a relationship with a guy, but that's about it. Um, and the guy that she was in a relationship with, they even give the indicators of like he was bleaching his hair and stuff, which you could read into the idea that he himself was also queer. So like, there's so many things that the film does a great job of explaining of not explaining things because they don't need to be explained. Yeah. And of highlighting the complexity like. of queer love. Yeah. I think that's... that's the theme. Well done. <laughs> okay, so we have the show sequence. They're performing finally. Again, it's a very appropriate song for this moment. And I think this whole sequence is pretty legendary. It's maybe one of my favourite moments in cinema. Can we talk about Bernadette having the most unhappy face ever <laughs> while being surrounded by the feathers? I, I think she opens the song, she's like, pure sore face, but covered in feathers. And she's like, meeting Mr. Wright, the man of my dreams. Like, couldn't be less fucked to be on stage. It's ma- major October vibes. Well, Ber- Bernadette, Bernadette looks over it, I think. Over uh, it. Mitzi looks angry when she's when she's performing, like really angry. 
But I'm I sorry, think major October vibes energy on that. <laughs> angry. Whereas uh, Felicia, I think she nails the drag kind of performance aspect the most. I think her lip sync yeah. is pretty flawless. I will say. Can we talk about the peacocks with the blue wig? Well, I'm going to actually. They're not peacocks. They're actually emus because each of these, each of these um, costumes are inspired by Australian icons. Obviously, they've been they're very extravagant and they've been queered by these queens. The first one is a grevillea, which is a native flower of Australia. Hmm. The second one is emus, which is a native bird of Australia. And then the third one is frill-necked lizards, which again, a, a native um, reptile. And the last one thought, is, of course, the Sydney Opera House. I thought the frill-necked lizards were native to the Jurassic Park movies. I yeah, didn't know really. they came from Australia. <laughs> they are very that, but no, I was looking into it and they are, um, they're a, a type of lizard. You can look, look it up, a frill-necked lizard. They are native I think the to, last one was um, Sydney Opera House, but that's a gag. I got the rest of the references, but not the Sydney Opera House. Rewatch it, and it's actually pretty cool. And also, really their good. their makeup and their hair is like a, a opera kind of moment. It's like a big production updo, white face kind of Georgian inspired. So I think it all relates to opera. And then behind them, they have Aborigine art. So it's all that this whole scene represents that they are part of Australia and Australia is part of them, even if Australia doesn't always want them to be part of it. So it's kind of a complex contrast there. It's like an uplifting moment, yeah. Yeah, I thought this scene was just really nice. Like, first of all, visually it's gorgeous. Um, As you say, all the characters do a really good job of performing while still sort of embodying the character that they play. Um, So kudos to all the actors for doing that because I can't imagine many of them had much experience with lip syncing before this. So that, like just everything about it is just really nice to watch. And the fact that it is such a nice patriotic moment. And as you say, it brings in the indigenous culture. It doesn't just go for white Australia. It encompasses all of Australia. And it's just really nice to see. And I think this this whole film, it's portraying the good and the bad aspects of Australia. It's showing it as this amazing, vast wilderness with these amazing animals and this amazing culture of, of, its, of its people and its history. But it has this rowdy, dark and hateful side to its culture as well. And I guess this film is kind of offering uh, a new vision of it, which I will come to later on when we like to look at his son. But yeah, after the show... They receive a kind of a, a mixed reaction, but there's lots of love and cheers from Bob, from Tick's wife, and also his son, who he didn't know was watching, and that causes Tick, or rather uh, Mitzi, to faint. And then we find out that his ex-wife is actually asking him to look after the son so she can get a break. Like, <laughs> can we just talk about how these drag queens have the weakest dispositions ever? They faint at I know. <laughs> I'm like, bro, come on. You never had something go awry on stage. But no, I think that scene where we have this big queer family together, there's a scene where they're playing uh, charades and you have the ex-wife, you have the son, you have the three queens. And you get the vibe that Mitzi's quite ashamed of her career, but in reality, her son is not bothered by it at all. And the son, the very cute line that the son says is, well, you have a boyfriend when you're back in Sydney. I actually got quite emotional there. I don't know whether it's just the quarantine making me emotional, but I thought that was so sweet. And I think it's an adorable moment of acceptance of this child for its parent that it's just met. 
And I guess this child represents, I guess, the future of Australia that is a future of acceptance. And that's what I think is a nice conclusion for that storyline of all this. With, with the theme of discrimination being a big part of the film, that's a nice part to end the film on, I guess. It's yeah. like a glimmer of hope that the next generation lessens and lessens that discrimination. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting that even to this day, we're still trying to make that point to some people that if you normalise queer existence to children, they are very happy to accept it. And this movie is making that point back in 1994. Wasn't even born yet. <laughs> and like, because that's the thing is like, my little cousins have always known that I was queer and they, like, they would come around to my mom's house and ask if they could borrow, like they would always just be parading around my mom's house wearing my wigs whenever I wasn't in because they loved the fact that I had all these like crazy colorful things. It's never seemed weird to them because it's normal. Yeah, and because children exactly love children love color. Children love dressing up. Children love all these Halloween, things. Mama. When when you're a child, those things aren't seen as negative. They're seen as oh, you're being creative. You're having fun. You're playing. But when you're an adult and you're attracted to color and dressing up and doing what we do all the time, that's somehow seen as something. Oh, that's unusual. That's strange. That's not normal. Well, what I'll say is it's 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 seen as unusual if like a six year old, five year old boy wants to dress up as a girl. I think that feeds into the, the patriarchy of it all. If, if it's Halloween and you're a five-year-old, a six-year-old, and a girl wants to go out as um, a traditionally male costume, I, I, nothing's coming to mind right now, but it, it's fine. But if, if a young boy wants to go out as a traditionally female stereotype or character, then it's seen as like, oh, that's not all right. So I think it, it that whole like dr dressing up is a thing that kids love to do and it's something you can't ignore but it's when you bring gender into it that then yeah. you know the hetties get a oh what's going on thing um yeah like girls can be action man for halloween but boys can't be barbie for halloween yeah. and it's because it goes back to that point we made earlier about assimilation as a form of acceptance because it's all about the patriarchy and it's all about yeah. adhering to male standards. If, you, if you're a woman who wears trousers, you're strong. If you're a man who wears a skirt, you're wrong. <laughs> I've made that up in the spot. That's a fantastic one. That, wow. that was a good rhyme. Well done, wow. you. Wow. Spitting these I'm lyrics, CJ. Spitting it. <laughs> Spitting rhymes right here. So we're almost at the end of this movie and one of the final scenes and again a very iconic moment is we have the completion of one of Felicia's dreams and that is to climb King's Canyon in drag and once again it's a quite a surreal moment but in this case it's very much real and is happening these queens are climbing this rock in in drag although they are wearing um boots though not, not yeah heels. does it count if it's not heels <laughs> Very Lacey Rain climbing an entire mountain and drag. I mean, she climbed Ben Lomond in heels. Actually crazy. Not comparable. If it's not heels, don't count. <laughs> oh my God. But I think this scene is a really glorious moment of beauty, bravery and queerness and Australia combined into one scene. I think it's a very fitting conclusion to the film. So they, yeah. they, re they reach the summit and... I think it's it's always a funny moment when you complete something that seemed unachievable and then you kind of think, oh, what do I do now? now? And I guess all they can do is go back home and continue their lives. That's all you can do. So they, they, they vow to finish the shows in Alice Springs and then go home. But the, the twist here is that Bernadette decides to stay and she's found a new home 
in this small town in the middle of nowhere. And I think it's surprising because at the start of the film, she was quite resistant and reluctant to go to this place, but now she's found a home here. Yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely interesting because, as you say, she was the least receptive to the idea of going and ends up wanting to stay. Um, like we said earlier, the whole thing, Bob would be such a better character if there wasn't the whole messiness of his relationship with Cynthia. Um, so sort of, if you put that to the side, it's a really nice conclusion for Bernadette's story of having lost someone, gone on a journey with her friends, having had a little bit of self-discovery alongside the rest of them, and then deciding to take a chance and do something new rather than just going back to the comfort that she's used to, especially after having given the advice to Felicia about how city walls are there to keep you safe, and then deciding that, well, fuck it, I'm going to try and do something else, see if I can make it outside of Sydney. And it's quite empowering in a way to see her do that. But yeah. as I say, the whole thing with Bob and Cynthia kind of makes it a little bit weirder. But I guess you could hope that, I mean, it's kind of, it's suggested that the relationship between Bob and Cynthia was not a loving one, but it's yeah. quite clear that Bob seems to care for Bernadette in a more, in a, in a much deeper way. So you would hope that that is a more true relationship. But yeah, like what, what you're saying there, that Bernadette does say that she will never know if this thing will work unless she tries it, and that's what she does. So good on her. Uh, I want to comment that when she's standing there in the white robe with the blonde up there, she fully looks like Madonna as Evita. Wrinkles complete. <laughs> um, and one of, my, one of my favorite lines from the kind of denouement of the film is the mum, when he's, she's talking about the kids, I, I don't know if anyone else wrote this line down, morals are a choice and he'll decide on them when he's good and ready. I don't have any like analysis of it. I just thought it was a really fun line of like, yeah. morals are not this, you know, concrete, everyone subscribes to the same thing of what is good, what is bad. You have to find your own path through this life and you have to decide where you draw the line in the sand of what is a, a morally good thing to do and what is morally bad. And yeah. that this kid, some people would say this kid agreeing to go with these drag queens is morally wrong. Many folk would say that all of those people, whether it's the drag queens, the trans women, or uh, the lesbian mother, that all of their lives are unmoral and wrong. Yeah. But yes, as you say, like morals are, they're not black and white and... Uh, they are, in, in a sense, like, they can be individual, what you think is a right or wrong thing to do, rather than what I mean, society thinks is right or wrong. I mean, I, I will disagree on that point. Morals are what I consider to be right and wrong, and everyone else should. <laughs> Sorry, God, we forgot uh, that you describe what, uh, how we have to live. But that relates back to that discrimination thing, of that discrimination is based on your morals to an extent when it comes yeah. to certain things. So what some people would discriminate these people on is or discriminate against these groups of people is because of the morals that they have decided will rule their life and that we get to hope that this young boy getting to decide on his own morals helps lower the kind of discrimination these people will face in the future. So the last scene in the film, we have the queens traveling back to Sydney with, um, well, not all the queens, only Felicia and Mitzi with this child in tow as well. One thing I will say is that there's a little moment that um, sort of undermines a lot of Felicia's character development, I find, yeah. which is as they are driving away and 
uh, Felicia has told Benjamin what um, Bernadette's dead name is, and she says, um, "See you around." I missed, I missed it as well, Rue. It's right as they're leaving. As Mama Mia is underscoring the shout, "Bye, Ralph." <gasps> oh, that's a shame. Um, that's not great. And um, does a lot of it, it. does a lot of the character depth, but I. And even worse, it's played for laughs because we're meant to go, yeah. oh, those kids. And nah. the thing is, is that I can fully see that. And I, like, as soon as they said that, I went, oh, that's... And then I went, oh, wait, no. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> very quickly. Like, the film very successfully portrays it. It's just a cute little quip. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like... Yeah, like, you, you, you did the same as me, October. You bought into it being like, oh, that's funny, because they've told us it's funny. But when you analyse it, you're like, oh, it's not. No. Yeah, it was, so, <laughs> a little bit the, of a the same, the there, same way with Bob, when you're like, oh, he's the love interest. And you're like, but does he deserve it? Yeah, exactly. But yes, they're heading back to Sydney, uh, blasting ABBA, and to fulfil his son's wish... They perform ABBA back in the nightclub and they get an amazing reception from the audience. And the final line of the film is Mitzi saying, thank you, it's good to be home, which I thought was, the, I think the fact that the last word of the film is home, I think is quite significant because that's a big yeah. theme of this movie. I think it's also interesting that it's basically a repeat of the start of it with the two of them doing a duet together on stage. But at the start, the audience were, they quite liked it, but it was still a bit like, oh, this isn't going down amazingly. And then we see it this time, like they've had an entire story, they've gone on their journey, they've had some self-development, they come back and everyone is so much more excited. And it's just a really nice way of visiting what we've already seen, but you can see that there's just been such a growth. Um, and as you say, it's the whole sense of coming back to your home and having learned what you love about it a little bit more after some time away. Yeah. So it's a really I'm, nice I'm, I'm, I'm just picturing that as the first show back in Dells after lockdown. We're doing <laughs> where, ABBA. Where the, where the audience realised what they had all along and they were taking it for granted. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, and they will not realise that if you do your ABBA performance for the 15,000th time. <laughs> Performing to a socially distanced crowd of 25 people. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually... You won't be able to do your aperture. You won't be able to be socially distant. Two meters apart. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wear my big hair. That's at least two meters, so Regis won't be able to come within. I'll do it at the DJ booth and see if you can hang off the banister. Lovely, yeah. <laughs> we'll do we'll that. We'll do it on each of the tables facing the bar. They're at least two meters apart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, so I think we are finished with this movie. Now, one point I wanted to make that we never actually discussed is the movie's title. Once again, it's quite a long one. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I like this title. It has the word queen in it. The word adventure suggests a journey of discovery. And something about the word Priscilla just seems gay as fuck to me. I don't quite know why. Priscilla! It just just sounds gay. (laughs) I mean, when have you ever heard of a straight person called Priscilla? Priscilla is a... Nah... She was a secret lesbian. Um, <laughs> October 5th, spilling the tea. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I think the title fits it. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the title. I think it's far superior, as, as everything with this film is, is superior than Tu Wong Fu. But yeah, any closing thoughts? Shall we do our scorings out of 10, Queens? Let's do our scorings. Yes. Uh, guests first, October, what are you giving this film out of 10? Um, I would give this film... Uh, can I do decimals? 
for no. fuck's sake. Integers <laughs> only. Integers only. Fine, I will give this film a, a very kind 9 out of 10 because the situation with like Cynthia and a few of the sort of transphobic comments from even like Felicia and stuff and it, there's still a few issues of representation but when you take it with the sort of caveat that this is a movie from 1994 and it's doing better than a lot of movies are still doing today then I, I still have to give it a very high score even though I can see a few things that haven't aged so well so 9 out of 10 loved it one of my faves okay so yeah like October this one was one of my favorites I would give it a very, uh, yeah, a solid 9 out of 10 for the exact same reasons. I think it is very ahead of its time. And I think the effect this film had on not just Australian culture, but also queer culture and LGBT culture in general is pretty significant. And yeah, it's the costumes, the the humour, the, the story, the characters, it's all very, very strong. But of course, there are those moments like Cynthia and like some of the trans depictions that are not ideal. But yeah, it gets a 9 out of 10. I think it's a great film. Given it an 8 out of 10, it would have been a 9 if Jason Donovan was cast in it instead. <laughs> but that's not um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, like solid film. The, the one thing I want to say is uh, it's a review that I read and I think it sums up. Um, although the premise is ripe for comedy and it does have many hilarious moments, the film overall is actually tender and thoughtful. And I think yeah. that Again, yeah. with Two Uncle, there's so much opportunity for hilarity, but it delves deep into the things that need to be delved deep into. It takes seriously the things that need to be taken seriously, and it does have many um, great points. So I'm giving it an eight. Lovely. Delish. So, Calm delish. Yeah, and I think you can see that in the sense that uh, Two Wong Fu is considered just a comedy, whereas this film is a comedy hyphen drama. So it's a little yeah. bit more real in that sense. So that means that the Screen Queen's average for this week is 8.6, where the 6 is recurring. Considerably higher than last week's movie. But yes, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us. And mega love to our special guests this October 1st. And where can the children follow you, October? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, October underscore fist. And I also have a WordPress blog where I occasionally ramble about things that interest me. So if you want to hear the ramblings of a disgruntled transgender drag queen, then you can find me there on Facebook or just on a street corner yelling obscenities at people. Where can the children find you, Rujazzle? They can find me at Rujazzle, R-U-J-A-Z-Z-L-E. And where can they find you, CJ? On all social media platforms at the CJ Banks. Yes, and check us out for all of our online digital drag shows, all things on our socials, and at the Bingo Babes as well. And make now sure you're following our brand new accounts at Screen Queens, Queens spelled K-W-E-E-N-S, as we'll be updating that with more information on upcoming podcasts. Yes. And we can reveal to close this episode, our film for next week is a more recent film, something from the noughties. It's British and it is kinky boots yes 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 we are featuring a very special guest who indeed got her name from this movie we're having special guest miss lola fierce on the podcast Ah. help us discuss a film which she might have seen i don't know maybe once or twice (laughs) 
<laughs> Hundreds of times. Wow. <laughs> we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Have a fabulous day and enjoy your life. Bye-bye-bye. Bye-bye.